Okay, that's about as good as it's going to get. Okay, okay, uh, and the recording program seems to be working. Okay, okay, so um, I guess I will be starting then. Uh, let me just open the file here. Okay, okay, so I will be starting in three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, as always. And today, my guest is Dr. Joshua M. Tiber. He is an associate professor in the Department of Experimental and Applied Psychology at VU Amsterdam. His work is dedicated to better understanding how people solve some of the fundamental problems of life including avoiding infectious diseases, obtaining and retaining a mate, and navigating the threats and affordances of interdependence. He approaches these topics with a combination of ideas and techniques from social psychology, personality psychology, and also evolutionary biology. So, Dr. Tiber, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ricardo. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let's start by discussing a little bit these issues surrounding disgust as an emotion, as an evolved emotion, um, because I, I've already had some guests on the show with whom I talked about this, uh, and it seems to be, a, uh, to be a issue here because there are people uh, um, it seems that people are not sure about how many domains of disgust there are. There are some people that say, for example, that we have three types of disgust, that is pathogen disgust, sexual disgust, and moral disgust. And there are other people that say that we don't really have uh, the third type, uh, that is moral disgust, uh, the, that is a specific domain, that we only have pathogen disgust and sexual disgust, and then things related to morality derived from those two. So what would you have to say about that? Yeah, well, it's a very interesting question, and it's an interesting problem, uh, partially based on the fact that disgust can be so confusing in and of itself. So many different things seem to disgust people. And um, the great variety of disgust listers have led some psychologists to say, well, there's just one function. There's one domain of disgust and it just protects us. It protects the self. It keeps bad things away from the self and it allows good things to come into the self. Um, but of course, a definition that broad uh, doesn't allow us to make many specific predictions or differentiate between the disgust that we might feel toward bad food versus having sex with a relative, which yeah, in a way, both protects us, but they probably elicit very different behaviors, rely on different perceptual systems, et cetera, to the point that we could probably group them as different domains. Now, when I talk about a domain, and a lot of my colleagues do, we're talking about different functions, okay? And um, the disgust that we feel towards some types of things, uh, researchers, including myself, have labeled as pathogen disgust. Now, we can think of things like spoiled foods or bodily wastes like vomit or something like this or wounds that look infectious and the primary motivations that we feel when we detect those things are do not touch this avoid physical contact okay and the reason for that is pretty straightforward pathogens don't have legs they don't have wings they can't run after us they can't pursue us 
The way that we get infected with something is generally physical contact with it. And that disgust, once our perceptual systems have detected, hey, there's something that we've evolved to detect pathogens, or we've learned to detect pathogens, I'm going to feel an emotion that makes me back away and avoid physical contact. Now, sexual disgust seems different. So the most consistent sexual disgust elicitor is sex with relatives. We don't want to have sex with our relatives. Um, and this is qualitatively different. It's a kind of contact, sexual contact, but it's not just touching someone. So we could have a very close personal and cooperative relationship with an individual in which we have physical contact with them. We might even hug them in a friendly way, shake their hand, um, work on a task together, prepare food with them. And there's absolutely no avoidance motivation engendered by those behaviors. But the second that we think about having a sexual relationship with that person, we might experience an intense revulsion, which motivates us to avoid that specific type of contact. Now that's where I would say that these are two different domains because the avoidance has two different functions. It's based on two different types of perceptual systems, or I should say uh, different things are perceived that engender the disgust. Now to get back to your question, is moral disgust an additional domain? This is tricky to answer at this point because we have a lot of good information about what elicits pathogen disgust and what elicits sexual disgust. And we can draw some good inferences about the functions of those emotions. Moral disgust, there's wide disagreement about what is even eliciting moral disgust. Okay. So some people say that they're disgusted by politicians or people who lie or cheat. And even in the uh, po uh, political realm, some people are disgusted by right-wing populists and others are disgusted by left-wing populists. Um, and further, uh, there's a lot of moral emotions that uh, seem to intermingle. So people can say they're angry, they can say they're disgusted, they might just say they're outraged. And so drawing hypotheses about what the function is, which is really a criteria, I think, for defining something as a separate domain, is difficult without having better information about what elicits moral disgust. Now, I think that my research and other people's research is trying to make some headways with, with defining moral disgust first and then making some functional hypotheses. I would not say that moral disgust isn't a separate domain at this point. I think that we've gathered good evidence suggesting that it does have distinct functions from pathogen and sexual disgust and potentially distinct functions from anger. I'm happy to talk about those more if you like, but that's kind of my long-winded answer about how many domains there are. No, right, that was great. So, but uh, if it is the case that moral disgust does not constitute a separate domain of disgust, uh, how is it that we can obtain an association between the emotion of disgust and certain aspects of moral psychology, like the ones that you refer to? Yeah, so this is this is another interesting and kind of confusing thing about moral disgust is it might actually refer to different aspects of morality. The first aspect might be kind of explaining your moral condemnation to someone, just why you think something is wrong. So Jonathan Haidt in some uh, famous studies asked people to explain why they thought incest is wrong. And he didn't just ask why is incest wrong, he gave an example of a brother and sister, Mark and Julie, who decide to have sex with each other. 
And he reported that a lot of people, they simply said it's wrong because it's disgusting. And you see uh, behaviors that are moralized having kind of sexual or pathogen content across cultures and across time. We can think about things like bestiality. We can think about things like incest. We can think about things like sexual promiscuity or prostitution. We can think about things like homosexuality. So third parties, people who aren't engaging in these behaviors, morally condemn them. And they often say they're immoral because they're disgusting. Okay. Now, with all of these behaviors, people often find them disgusting to think about engaging in them themselves. I would be disgusted by having incest with some with a, with a relative, and I also think it's wrong and disgusting for other people to do that. That may be a different phenomenon than disgust toward things that have zero pathogen and zero sexual content. Okay, so that's things like I am disgusted by this politician who was taking large donations from a hedge fund manager when they said that they were going to end corruption. Or I'm disgusted by this politician who gave a high level job to a relative rather than someone who is more qualified. Now, these this is, again, why it's a little confusing to talk about moral disgust as a separate domain and that when we use that term moral disgust, we're probably talking about discrete phenomena. And to understand those different types of disgust, we probably need to divide between those. Mm -hmm. OK, very well. OK, so let's break, try to break up, to break down this a little bit in terms of the association between disgust and certain components of moral psychology and perhaps politics as well. Because uh, in the near future, I will be having Dr. Randy Thornhill a second time on the show to talk about the parasite stress theory of values and sociality. And yes. I've read this book and it seems to me, at least it seems to me that he connects or there's a, a high correlation between pathogen disgust and political conservatism. But I've read at least one paper of yours where you concluded that it, it is rather sexual disgust that is correlated with political conservatism. So could you talk about that? Absolutely. So um, Dr. Thornhill's ideas have been very inspirational to me, and I think that they're very interesting. Um, that said, the correlation between pathogen disgust, and just for your audience, let me let me explain what that is briefly. So when we talk about disgust sensitivity, we're referring to um, individual differences in how much disgust people report toward the types of things that elicit at least a little disgust in most people. So we've developed a questionnaire that we've used in a lot of different countries and a lot of different languages. And it seems to operate pretty consistently across those countries and that you get similar sex differences, which maybe we'll talk about later. You get a roughly normal distribution. Um, and uh, these items are things like, how disgusted are you by stepping in dog poop? Some people find that incredibly disgusting and other people just aren't bothered by it very much. Uh, another item is you're standing next to someone and they have bad body odor. You know, they smell like sweat. Some people, it really bothers them, other people, not so much. And um, by completing this scale, we can get an estimate of how easily disgusted people are. Now, in the political domain, about 10 years ago, researchers found uh, that 
individuals who score higher on a discussed sensitivity questionnaire, they also report having more social conservative political attitudes. Now I should clarify, this is a very important point. This is not a strong relationship. This is a pretty weak to moderate relationship. The correlation is about R is equal to 0.2 or 0.25. Which, which is not very strong. It means about 3% of all of the variability in conservatism is accounted for by discussed sensitivity. So 97% of how people differ is unrelated to this. Nonetheless, it's not zero, okay? And people have wondered, well, why is this exactly? Now, you referenced uh, the parasite stress theory of uh, values and, um, one aspect of the parasite stress theory suggests that there's a lot of aspects of social political attitudes that are actually protective against infectious disease. And these are the conservative ones. These are basically ones that say, we're going to keep out groups away from us and we're going to consolidate kind of in-group values. Um, and it's based on the idea that out groups pose a different pathogen threat than in-groups do. Now, um, the thing is, though, a lot of social political attitudes are also related to people's sexual attitudes, their sexual strategies. Now, when evolutionary psychologists talk about sexual strategies, they're talking about a continuum that ranges from, on the one hand, very monogamously oriented. People only want to have sex with one person at a time for a long period of time. They're not going to have sex with that person unless they're in a committed relationship. At the other end is a uh, less restricted strategy. That's kind of the polite way of saying promiscuous. And that is uh, people will have sex outside of a committed relationship. They're comfortable having sex with a lot of different people. And it happens that this dimension relates to a lot of political attitudes as well. People who are more socio-sexually unrestricted, they favor things like having legal access to abortion and having legal access to hormonal contraception and basically having laws that don't punish people for having sex. On the other hand, people who are more restricted favor a lot of policies that basically disincentivize, make it more difficult to have an unrestricted strategy and favor more restricted strategies. Now, as it happens, disgust sensitivity, so pathogen disgust, also relates to sexual strategies. And there's a reason for that. Having a lot of sexual partners exposes you to a lot more infectious disease. And it's not just sexually transmitted disease, it's also just you're touching a lot more people. You're hugging them, you're kissing them, etc. And so what we hypothesized was, or at least what we wanted to test, was is there a unique relationship between reactions to pathogen cues, the things like the dog poop and the body odor, etc., and political ideas, once we control for sexual strategies. And we've found over multiple papers, many data sets, many ways of measuring the variables, that there's no relationship between pathogen disgust and social conservatism once we control for sexual disgust and other measures of sexual strategy. Now, what this suggests to us is that conservatism is not directly uh, motivated by avoiding pathogens. Instead, it's related to sexual strategies, which themselves are related to avoiding pathogens. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. And so, uh, since this is related to politics, um, would we be allowed to say or conclude from all of this that perhaps uh, these aspects, in this case of social disgust, get expressed politically because, for example, if people are part of a society where there's a norm for monogamy, for example, and they want to be promiscuous, then perhaps it is not that easy for them to pursue their sexual interests and vice versa because of the norms that are imposed by the society they live in. Yeah, absolutely. And different societies are going to uh, allow this variation to be expressed differently. So we see this with personality psychology quite a bit. Um, for example, uh, there are certain situations where an extroverted person could actually be able to act extroverted. Being in a library is not one of those. You can't really tell who's extroverted in a library. And an extroverted person might not be able to do what they might want to do, which is talk to a lot of people. If you put them at a party or a place where they can select where they go and what they do, you can really readily observe that variability. Same thing with sexual strategies. So if you have a very conservative uh, society that really heavily controls and condemns non-monogamous sexuality, um, so someplace like maybe uh, Yemen, um, then uh, yeah, people are not going to be able to exact these strategies as much as in Portugal, or the United States or the Netherlands where I live, where people are going to be able to choose their different strategies. Now, interestingly, it's probably in those countries where you have a lot more conflict over certain political rules related to sexuality because people are actually able to express these different desires. In countries where the rules are already really strongly set, there's obviously not gonna be a lot of people who are even able to allow to campaign to have looser uh, rules. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so let's now talk a little bit about sex differences because you already touched a little bit on that earlier. So what are some of the most evident sex differences in, in at least the domains of pathogen disgust and sexual disgust since we're not sure about moral disgust? Yeah, sure. So um, this is one really interesting reason to divide sexual and pathogen into different domains. Okay, so we talked about the different functions that they might serve earlier, but also we see distinct patterns of relationships with personality variables and also with sex differences. So in line with um, parental investment theory, which I, I've seen the other people you've had on your podcast or your interviews, and um, You've surely discussed this uh, in extensive detail already, but basically um, women have to invest a lot more in uh, conception than men do. And so they should be a lot more careful about whom they're conceiving with and when they're conceiving. And that goes back to whom they're having sex with and when they're having sex. Um, and so we should see a lot stronger motivations for women to avoid sexual situations that might be suboptimal. And there, what we see is a huge sex difference in sexual disgust between men and women. And uh, we've collected data in several different countries and seen pretty consistent sex differences. So one that pops to mind is when I was a PhD student in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the US, the sex difference in sexual disgust was about 1.2 standard deviations. When I collected data using the exact same measure, but in the Dutch language with a national sample very diverse in terms of age, um, educational background, and income, 
we had the exact same sex difference as with 19 year olds in Albuquerque. Now to give uh, you and your audience an idea of what this sex difference means, it means that about 90% of women are higher on sexual disgust than the average man. It's about the same as the sex difference in height. Okay, so this is a massive sex difference. With pathogen disgust, we also see a sex difference. So we just collected data across 30 countries using the same questionnaire translated into local languages. And we found very consistently a sex difference of about 0.4 standard deviations in pathogen disgust, with women being higher on disgust sensitivity than men. Now that means about 65% of women score higher than the average man does. So much smaller than the sexual one, but still a reliable cross-cultural non-zero sex difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. Uh, okay, so do the domains of disgust, that is, uh, does disgust sensitivity in people uh, get more, uh, do, do they experience weaker or stronger uh, disgust sensitivity when, they, when they're dealing with people from their in-group in comparison with people from out-groups or... Yeah, it's a very interesting question, and it's one that uh, is related to the parasite stress theory of uh, values. Um, we don't have a lot of data on that. Now, one interesting paper that was recently published, it was by a researcher named Florian von Leeuwen at Tilburg University in the Netherlands, and Michael Bang-Peterson, a political psychologist at Aarhus University in Denmark. They tested this idea by uh, recruiting Americans from the United States and Indians from India. And they asked their participants to look at a picture. And the picture was either of an American or an Indian. So you get a, a two by two design. You have Americans who either see an American, a white American or an Indian. And you see Indians who either see a white American or an Indian. And further, they manipulated the faces so that the faces either looked healthy or they looked like they had some infection. Now what they found, and to take a step back, if people are more uh, averse to contact with infectious outgroup than in-group members, you would expect for the white Americans to be more comfortable with contact with the white American who's infected than with the Indian who's infected. And you would expect the Indians to be more comfortable with contact with the Indian who is infected than with the white American who is infected. They didn't find that at all. They found that people are just, they don't want to have contact with people who look infectious, but it didn't matter if they were of an ethnic in-group or an ethnic out-group. Um, now, there's another reason why we might see different kinds of attitudes toward contact with in-groups versus out-groups. And it, it might not have anything to do with in-groups being more infectious than out-groups or their pathogens being more dangerous. Um, anytime we have contact with anyone, there's a risk of infectious disease just by shaking someone's hand. Now, we need to manage this because we also need to have contact with people. Humans are very social uh, and it's almost trite, it's almost a cliche to say we're a hyper-social species. We shouldn't be indiscriminately social though. We shouldn't just have contact with anyone in the world. We should be more willing to have contact with people that we have to have contact with that we actually have cooperative relationships with, that we are interdependent with. 
That's usually the case with in-group members rather than out-group members. Okay? And it might not have anything to do with what race they are, what ethnicity, what country they're from, if they have different types of pathogens. It might simply be that we want to have contact with the people whom we're close with, who we need to cooperate with, but we're less comfortable with contact with people that we don't really need to have contact with. So this could just be people that you're not a cooperative partner with, someone you don't like very much, who's not an outgroup member, but it's just someone who you don't get a lot of benefits from the relationship, so you might not want to have physical contact with them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, disgust sensitivity is also a trait that vary uh, individually among people, that is, uh, uh, between the several individuals, there are people that are more sens uh, dis uh, sensitive to disgust and others that are a bit less, and also in terms of the two domains, uh, that is pathogen disgust and sexual disgust, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's go back a little bit to, pol to politics because you also wrote a paper, uh, I'm not sure about when now, but uh, you talked a little bit about the, some sp very specific political aspects of political ideologies that disgust sensitivity is correlated with. And for, for example, you refer to traditionalism and social dominance orientation. So it seems that disgust sensitivity is more correlated with certain aspects of political conservatism than others. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, in the existing literature, a lot of times what you see is just that uh, disgust sensitivity is related to political attitudes or political conservatism broadly. But political psychologists actually identify different strains of political conservatism. And we often see this reflected in um, left versus right orientations and liberal versus conservative orientations. Um, Political psychologists can group these things into something that we can think about as traditionalism versus progressivism and um, inequality tolerance versus uh, egalitarianism. Social uh, dominance orientation is a trait that looks at tolerance of differences between individuals and between groups. Um, traditionalism looks at adherence to traditional norms and values versus openness to new ways of doing things, progressive values. And um, some existing theories of why disgust sensitivity relates to political attitudes makes different predictions about how it should relate to social dominance orientation versus traditionalism. If it's really about, if the uh, relationship between uh, disgust sensitivity and political attitudes is about avoiding intergroup contact, we should really expect it to be relating to social dominance orientation, which out of those two traits is more consistently related to prejudice toward foreigners and ethnic outgroups, racist attitudes, etc. If, however, it's related to something else like sexual norms, sexual values, hygiene norms, food preparation, uh, etc., we should see it more strongly related to the traditionalism versus progressivism dimension. Now, in the same study I mentioned earlier, we collected data across 30 countries, and we found consistently that disgust sensitivity was more strongly related to the traditionalism dimension than toward the social dominance orientation dimension. So basically, this our interpretation of these data 
is that disgust sensitivity isn't relating to values because of intergroup contact or intergroup relationships, but rather because some aspects of conservatism highlight adherence to traditional beliefs, whereas others highlight openness to all sorts of new ideas and ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So, still about politics, but now to move on to more general questions about evolutionary psychology and perhaps also personality psychology. So, uh, back in 2007, you wrote with Geoffrey Miller a paper about the hypothesis adaptationists as right-wing conspirators, according to, we, to which adaptationists use their research to support a right-wing political agenda. So wh what were the results that you get? Are really adaptationists <laughs> trying to justify an extreme right agenda or something like that? <laughs> so um, I first got interested in evolutionary psychology in 2002 when I was a student at Arizona State University. And like all of my fellow psychology students, or most of them, I was a very liberal left-wing kind of person. And I started reading all of these accusations of evolutionary psychology being this right-wing conspiracy. And I found it to be um, very interesting, but also a little bit confusing. And I noted that these accusations were made with zero data. No one had ever actually tested to see if evolutionary psychologists were very right-wing. And so in graduate school at the University of New Mexico, um, with Jeffrey Miller and Steve Gangestad, who were my advisors as a PhD student, uh, I designed a study where I contacted, it was either six or seven universities in the US that had evolutionary psychology programs. And um, I sent an email, so this was before data collection was really done online very much. This was in 2005 when we collected the data. Um, I sent an email just saying that we were interested in getting the political attitudes of psychology PhD students. And uh, the survey was sent to students in uh, clinical psychology programs, cognitive psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive neuroscience, social psychology. And since these universities had evolutionary psychology programs, evolutionary psychologists. We found that there was no difference between the evolutionary psychology students and the non-evolutionary psychology students. If anything, the evolutionary psychologists were slightly more liberal in some ways than the non-evolutionary psychologists. Um, now, there's a, there's a reason why some people might suggest evolutionary psychologists are these right-wing, uh, nasty people, if you're, <laughs> if you're not a right-wing person. Um, and that is because a lot of the hypotheses that we test are straightforwardly derived from the evolutionary biology literature. And sometimes this can strike um, very, very liberal people as a conservative kind of idea. Um, and sometimes in social psychology, there have been arguments that a lot of the hypotheses and ways that human behavior is perceived are biased based on social psychology's very, very left-wing orientation. And you, can under you might understand that um, Social psychology doesn't have a strong unifying theory to draw hypotheses and predictions from like evolutionary psychology does. So the researchers own political biases might shape a little bit more the hypotheses that they're testing. Whereas with evolutionary psychologists, we try to be very good at separating our personal political beliefs 
from the hypotheses we're testing and generating, which are very strongly derived from theory and evolutionary biology. And sometimes this can appear to very left-wing people as a conservative idea, but it's really just derived from the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's interesting because according to the data, at least most of the researchers and academics in the social scientists are, uh, lean left, right? So, I, I mean, even if in evolutionary psychology specifically, people tend to be adaptationists, I, I mean, perhaps they are able at least to separate the two domains, that is, we can't, we can't really derive in this case a knot from an ease and say oh just because this is innate or something like that then we have to hold these moral beliefs about this so perhaps people are able to separate those two things in, in their minds when they're doing their work and even more if they are being really true scientists right i think that's exactly correct and there there's two different perspectives of or at least two perspectives on scientists' orientations toward their own personal political beliefs and their science. One is that the science should support the political beliefs, and the job of the scientist is partially to be an activist. The other is that um, the job of the scientist in the best way to improve society is to arrive at the truth, even if the truth is superficially incompatible with your political intuitions. Um, I think that most evolutionary psychologists who are socially concerned would favor the second perspective, saying that we're not going to fix society if um, we're doing research that's not arriving at the truth, even if it, at first glance, isn't consistent with our political attitudes. Um, the first perspective, some other scientists, and people will actually say this, say, my science is a tool that I use to execute my political agenda. Evolutionary psychologists, the ones that I know, don't tend to think that that's a very effective strategy at actually improving things. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and that will be my last question. But just before that, I would also like you to tell us about the paper that you wrote back in 2014 that was titled, was titled What Can Cross-Cultural Correlations Teach Us About Human Nature? Because I found this very interesting because uh, one of the sources of evidence that people usually point to in evolutionary psychology uh, is human universals, that is, they do cross-cultural studies and if they find uh, a trend between across cultures, they say that that corresponds to a human universal. But in this paper, you refer to some aspects that people have to take into consideration when they're dealing with cross-cultural studies and they're, they're making some statements about human universals. So could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one of the one of the key points of the paper is simply looking at correlations between certain aspects of a country, like their gross domestic product or their parasite stress or their sex ratio and some psychological outcome is not a very good indicator of what's actually happening between people within a country. So let's take, for example, we've been talking about infectious disease some. Um, if you look at a correlation between nations' infectious disease, so a country like India has much more infectious disease than a country like Iceland. OK, 
Okay. And that's largely as a fun, that's largely a product of just the ecology. There's more moisture, there's more biomass, etc. Um, now let's say we look at correlations between a bunch of countries' parasite stress and some um, aspect of psychology. Uh, let's just say disgust sensitivity for a second. Now I want to clarify: in our findings, there's no relationship between parasite stress and disgust sensitivity. But let's assume that we found one. We might want to make the inference that growing up with more infectious disease affects your disgust sensitivity. What we'd actually need to do, though, is look within every single country and see if individuals who are exposed to more infectious disease have higher disgust sensitivity within them. Otherwise, what we could see is that the countries with higher disgust sensitivity actually have higher parasite stress, but it could just as well be that the people within those countries who, got, who get sick less or who are exposed to more infectious disease actually have lower disgust sensitivity. This is something known as Simpson's paradox, where when you look at relationships across different levels, you can have a different um, conclusion than if you looked within levels. And what we as psychologists need to be careful about is whether or not we're trying to make inferences about individual psychology. And if we're doing that, we don't want to draw inferences just based on the ways that countries differ. Now, you asked a moment ago about human universals, though. Um, human universals from evolutionary perspectives are uh, interesting and important, but also we expect some things to not be universal, even though they're the products of adaptations. So some adaptations are contingent in that uh, behavior aspects and aspects of the phenotype, what we can actually observe, depend on what conditions people find themselves in. So people who find themselves in very, very stressful conditions might be looking very, very different than people who find themselves in very plentiful conditions in terms of their risk taking or their sexual strategy or how long they live, et cetera. So um, if we wanted to say, well, there's a human universal of risk taking, for example, um, and that would be evidence for some kind of adaptation of calibrated risk, and we looked cross-culturally and we saw a lot of variability in risk-taking, well, that variability might actually arise from adaptations that say, look at how dangerous your environment is or how unstable your environment is and take a riskier strategy if you might not be around that long or if things are very difficult and you need to take some risks. Take a less risky strategy if you're in a very, very safe environment. Um, and as a final point with cross-cultural research, we have difficulties in terms of making sure the instruments we use are equally valid across the different cultures that we look at. Now, I mentioned the discuss sensitivity measure that we used um, in, across 30 countries in a lot of different languages. We took some efforts to um, approximate the validity across the different countries, and we observed very similar sex differences that were stable across the countries, and we observed normal distributions across the countries, and we observed um, similar reliability statistics, which is just a way to basically index the degree to which you're, what you're observing, the sum of all the scores uh, is interrelated and not random variability. Um, and these all suggested that the measure was operating pretty similarly across cultures. But these are not easy tasks. And um, the paper was partially just a, a call to um, be cautious with the inferences that you're drawing about evolutionary hypotheses from cross-cultural correlations.
Mm -hmm. Yes, but I mean, evolutionary psychology, at least at, at its basis, it takes that into account. That is the fact that people uh, perhaps share the same universal cognitive mechanisms, but they are fine-tuned to, to each specific environment, correct? Precise. That's exactly it. That's a much more succinct way of saying what I uh, was trying to say. <laughs> okay, great. So now for the last question, uh, and we already talked a little bit about this before, but uh, wh what is the importance of integrating uh, social psychology and evolutionary psychology and to give uh, psychology a biological basis? Because I've already had on the show people like, for example, Dr. Lee Jessim, and he also uh, told me a lot about uh, how throughout several decades people in social psychology made a lot of assumptions about perhaps certain aspects of sociality that were to affect people much more than they really do affect and they would put completely aside any, uh, any strong innate aspects to human psychology. So uh, what is the importance of trying to integrate the biological aspect with perhaps the more environmental one? Yeah, well, I think that there are two really key benefits of having more of a uh, explicit evolutionary orientation in social psychology. One is that um, social psychology uh, is really handicapped by the fact that different labs and different professors, different research groups studying different phenomenons use completely different language and completely different isolated theories to explain what they're trying to understand. And there's very rarely connection between these different theories that seek to explain different phenomenon, which really leads to some inefficiencies with how information is transmitted and integrated and can help strengthen different sub-areas. What an evolutionary perspective offers is a unifying theory for how we understand the design and function of the mind, including the design and function of social behavior. Um, and basically, just by using the same language, uh, we could try to connect different research areas and findings with common terminology. So a researcher who's studying um, prejudice between racial groups might be able to talk in the same language as someone who's studying um, sex differences in uh, some kind of outcome, be it achievement or job representation or something like that. Um, and uh, the second big benefit that I see is related to what Lee Jessam stated, I think, and that is um, drawing hypotheses based on theoretical priors. So basically, from an evolutionary perspective, we can have some ideas about what's more or less likely for the mind to be designed to do and for the evolutionary functions of our social psychology to be. Um, some hypotheses that have been uh, articulated many times in literature and a lot of research has been conducted on them were fairly implausible from an evolutionary perspective to start with. Okay? And um, it turns out that uh, there's not a lot of empirical support with them, even though a lot of resources have been spent trying to understand them. If psychologists were looking at the evolutionary literature, um, and also the behavioral genetics literature, which is uh, actually not evolutionary psychology, but also biologically based, 
Um, a lot of efforts that have been invested in testing specific hypotheses might have been better invested somewhere else in a more plausible kind of area. Mm -hmm. And isn't it also the case that uh, particularly social psychology, uh, um, most of its history has been that um, most of the people that go there are left-leaning and then they perhaps try to have uh, more of an activist approach to science and perhaps been drawn to certain conclusions that, that they had uh, uh, that they had formulated a priori and then simply uh, go after the the data that supported those conclusions just because perhaps they uh, they didn't want to be, particularly because of some things that happened throughout the 20th century that were very unfortunate. They, they didn't want to consider uh, the innate aspects of human psychology because uh, as some people said that could give some space uh, to things like eugenics and, and other stuff like that. Yeah, I, you know, I can certainly think of specific examples where researchers uh, appear to be strongly invested in a um, in an idea that doesn't seem to be very well supported by the data, but does seem to be politically favorable. I, I would hesitate to generalize across social psychology, though. I think that um, a more common kind of issue in social psychology and evolutionary psychology and science in general is to be invested in your initial hypothesis, regardless of the political implications. And uh, if you've spent a research career really advocating an idea, even if evidence is inconsistent with that idea, you might continue to want to say that my idea is correct. Now, uh, your observation as far as uh, politically expedient kind of conclusions, that certainly happens. And the examples that I can think of off the top of my head um, are have not been evolutionary psychology examples and they have been more related to social psychology but i, I would i wouldn't draw a, a broad conclusion about social psychology based on the anecdotes that uh, come to mind mm -hmm. okay so either way we could say that it doesn't matter if people lean right or left if they are doing science and since we all as human beings share the same biases and heuristics it's better for us to to try to be aware of that and and do our job as scientists uh, tr uh, tr trying to not be influenced by those things that may draw us to bad conclusions right absolutely being a scientist is hard <laughs> especially a social scientist because um, you know, I, I teach a class uh, on research methods and I contrast uh, psychology with something like physics, where with physics, you know, uh, you have very precise measurements. You don't have a lot of measurement error. And um, at least with the basic physics that I that I'm familiar with. <laughs> so uh, not newer stuff. Um, you know, you have a very concrete idea of what you're measuring and um, what the construct of interest is or what the what the unit you're measuring is in psychology we're trying to measure things like prejudice which you can't hold you can't directly measure um, and we're trying to make inferences that 
what we're observing actually ties on with what we want to observe, that we're able to give a proper definition that's the same definition that other people would use as the same thing in the literature. This is very challenging. Um, and we further have challenges with regards to uh, evaluating the data that might support or refute our hypotheses related to these constructs like prejudice. Now, some of those biases are politically oriented. So what our intuitions and values say, um, and some of them are career oriented, like I've invested a lot in this idea and I want this idea to be correct. Um, and uh, as psychologists, as social psychologists or evolutionary psychologists, um, we, we need to really struggle or we need to really try to overcome uh, these biases that we have to want to evaluate evidence in a certain way, whether or not it's a politically relevant way or just investment in our own research and own ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even science in general is very unintuitive for people, even though it was humans who created it, so, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay, great. So, Dr. Tiber, just before we go, would you like to share with people where they can find your work on the internet? Uh, sure. My website is uh, www.joshtiber.com. And I have a Twitter account that's uh, not super active. Uh, I think it's at Josh Tiber. Let me verify that. Yes, at Josh Tiber. You can see my uh, sporadic tweets. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will be leaving that in the description box for people to go and check out your work, which is very interesting. And so, uh, again, thank you a lot for taking the time. It was a really good conversation and perhaps, uh, who knows, in the future we could have another one. Sounds great, Ricardo. It was a real pleasure. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.